Good morning, diners and travelers. You're listening to On the Menu with Anne and Peter Haig. And today we're bringing you some important conversations about very significant reference books. The first one being by Joyce Goldstein. I always love talking to Joyce, who's been at the core of the, the uh, modern food movement since, this, well, the 70s at least. Um, anyhow, her book. It's beautifully researched and very relevant. It's called The New Mediterranean Jewish Kitchen, and we're happy to be able to bring this to you on time for your experience this year, 2016 Passover. I'm so happy to be talking to Joyce Goldstein again. It's been a while, Joyce. Well, I, it takes me a little time to do a book, and I just don't pop them right out. Okay. Well, this is the other thing which is so wonderful, is this book is a treasure, The New Mediterranean Jewish Table, Old World Recipes for the Modern Home, and, and all those words mean something for this book. And, I mean, first of all, it's it's so well-researched. I would say it's almost scholarly. But the difference is that you have the ability to filter all of these, all this information and all these recipes through a mind of a really accomplished chef, and that makes all the difference in the world in this book. Well, I want people to be able to cook the food. After all, it is home food, and I didn't want to do a chef-y kind of book, which would terrify people and mean they'd never go into the kitchen again. (laughs) And I also think it's important to have a little history with a recipe, to know where it came from, because in my mind, geography is destiny. Where you are raised, where you grow up, you're affected by what is cultivated there and what people around you are cooking. So it's very important for food to have a sense of place. I think that is my concern always. And you do. You say in this book that, of course, you break down all the different areas and down to countries and so forth as well, too. And you say if you see a recipe, ingredients jump out at you and you can tell where you are. I mean, geographically where you are. Well, like the various spice combinations. I mean, when you know the food of a country, you know that there are certain signature flavors that are used. So in Greece, you'll find things with tomato and cinnamon. Well, you don't find tomato and cinnamon a lot of other places. So I look at it, I think, aha, maybe there's Greek origins here. Or when I see something with meat and fruit, I could be in Iran, I could be in Morocco, or I could be in Catalan, Spain. But I know I'm in one of those three territories and then I do a little detective work and sort of track the recipe back and try to find out where it started I mean you have a five page bibliography I'm a nerd what can we say That's that's mandatory for University of California Press. If you can. <laughs> that's right. You that's have, right. Have, they wouldn't let this book it out unless yeah. they were sure I knew what I was talking yeah, about. Yeah, you have to turn the bibliography in first. Here's a here's a question. I bet nobody's ever asked you. How how much of what's in this book and all the other great books and all the other great work you've done has to do with the fact that you spent so many years in California and you're and you're still there? Well, I think. Since California is a Mediterranean country, I can get all of the ingredients and 
And I think a lot of, you know, Ashkenazi Jewish cookbooks, it's the same meat and potatoes and root vegetables, no matter 365 days a year. Whereas in the Mediterranean and California, we follow the seasons. No, that, and, that's exactly what, that's exactly what I thought. And I, yeah. and I wondered if you had ever sort of seen it that way or did it just naturally come because you spent so long there? Well, I mean, having spent time in the Mediterranean, there's a reason I came to California, and it was because it was like the Mediterranean. When we had been living in Italy and I came back and looked at New York, I said, it's gray and the buildings are tall and it doesn't look like Rome and blah, 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 whining and whining. And my former husband had worked in California for a summer, and we put everything we owned in a car and drove across the country, and I've been here since then. That's That's, that's a little bit like Warren Winoski from Stag's Leap. (laughs) Filed his family in the station wagon in Chicago. (laughs) No, I mean, you know, you go someplace where you're visually comfortable. And, um, you know, when I drive up to the Napa Valley, the hills look like Umbria to me, you know. And I, I just feel this is right. I feel connected to the landscape. And then when I go to the market and I see the most gorgeous figs, and I think that's right. That's why I'm here. There are reasons that I'm here. You know, when when did you uh, have your restaurant, uh, Square One? When when was that? The we 80s? opened in May of 1984, okay. and Square One was the first, I'd say, all Mediterranean restaurant in the country. And it was an education process for the diners because. I don't know whether they stopped teaching geography in schools, but when people would call and say, what kind of food do you have? And we'd say Mediterranean. It was dead silent. <laughs> yeah, they, they didn't know and, where that was. Right? And we had to explain the countries on the Mediterranean, you know, Spain and Italy, Greece, Turkey. Oh, okay, we got it. And then we introduced a lot of new foods that are on menus today, you know, romesco sauce or charmula or couscous or things like that. People didn't know what they were. Of course, today they're on every menu. But, you know, it was a slow process of education for the diner. Oh, yeah, you were way ahead of your time in that. How how long did that restaurant last? It was open for 12 years. I, I stupidly opened a restaurant at the age of 49 and a half, thinking I, I could I go forever. That. Yeah, I forgot about that. And then, and then my feet, by my mid-60s, my feet were going, oh, my God, <laughs> get off your feet. <laughs> yeah, get off your feet and write cookbooks, for heaven's sake. That's right. That's right. <laughs> a lot of... It, it, there's, I don't know how to explain this, but as I'm reading this cookbook, there are things that pop up, bits of information that I thought, you know, I know that, but I just never put it into context. Do you understand what I mean? The thing is, people like to know where their food came from and how it was prepared. And I was working from a lot of traditional home recipes. Days passed, women didn't have to go to work. You know, they stayed home and cooked. They made lunch, breakfast, dinner, cooked for the holidays. But when I looked at some of the recipes, they were really poorly organized because people had time. Now we want to be efficient. We want to make good food. So I reorganized some of the cooking process for a lot of these recipes. And also I amped up the flavor a little bit because the modern palate likes a lot more stimulation than they did in the old days. And I think that has to do also with the quality of ingredients that most people can get are not probably as fresh as they were back in the old days in the Mediterranean. Well, I think you've elevated all these, even the classic recipes as far as I'm concerned. Well, thanks. (laughs) Well, you know, I'm a fan. 
So, uh, but I'm, I'm truly loving this yeah, recipe. You, you two guys, you have a mutual admiration society I know. here. Well, we've been talking for years, yeah. you know. <laughs> <laughs> we know that. Yeah. One way for the uh, listeners' benefits, explain how, how it's organized. Now, you focus on uh, three distinct Jewish cultures, right? Yes. And, uh, you know, because most Jews and it's cook Ashkenazi food, which is food of Eastern Europe, sort of cold weather, stick to your ribs. Yeah, chicken. No, no chicken not a vegetable in sight except for a carrot. This is a Mediterranean book, which is based on three kinds of Jews. The Sephardic Jews, who were in Spain and Portugal and who had to leave after the Inquisition of 1492 and mostly emigrated through Italy. Many landed in Greece and in Turkey. And then there are the Maghrebi Jews, the ones in North Africa, Morocco, Algeria, Tunisia, Egypt, and Libya. And then finally, the Mizrahi Jews, the Jews that were living in Muslim lands basically since biblical times in Iraq, Iran, Syria, Jordan, Lebanon. And those cuisines are all unique to themselves. North African food is not going to be confused with Arabic food, nor is it going to be confused with Greek and Turkish food. So... I wanted to show the distinction between these three kinds of Jews rather than having everyone think that it's all brisket and latkes because this is so much richer and so more varied and healthy. Well, there, there is a, uh, an interaction between the, the, those groups and also, I mean, a lot of it filtered through Israel, right? And we well, have, Israel, I mean, is a melting pot like exactly. the United States. Yeah. So a lot of the, a lot of the Jews from the Mediterranean, especially, you know, during World War II when a lot of the Arab countries sort of sympathized with anti-Semitic sentiments, um, a lot of those Jews emigrated to Israel. So they're getting a lot of the same food. But now, you know, cooked by Israeli chefs. Yeah, and aren't you amazed at the success of these uh, the Israeli uh, restaurants? Well, I think it's great. Number one, because it's made people aware of the fact that, in fact, there's more to Jewish cooking than brisket, and that they're using fresh ingredients from the Mediterranean. I think it was it's a wonderful introduction. Because, you know, everybody knows, Mediterranean diet, healthy diet, everybody should be on it. And then they don't make the connection between Mediterranean diet and Jewish food. They go back to the brisket people. And um, I think the Israeli chefs are doing us a favor in letting people know that there's way more to Jewish cooking than the old-fashioned stuff. Now, we, you have so many intriguing, updated recipes like for things like artichokes that a lot of people just don't even know what to do with. Well, they're wonderful. I mean, they're coming into season right now. And <laughs> actually, I'm doing a demo at our ferry, ferry plaza farmer's market what tomorrow. What are you going to do? And I'm doing a, the artichokes with lemon and orange That's because great. it'll be colorful and our, and our citrus is still going strong. So I thought that would be a perfect recipe to demo, but there are probably 20 recipes in here for artichokes. Oh, yeah. And an eggplant, I think, has a page by itself. <laughs> there are so many eggplant recipes. I mean, it's sort of interesting to see the focus and, and how 
fruit, like an eggplant, which we treat as a vegetable, was originally treated as a fruit in the Middle East. They'd put it in sugar syrup, they'd fry it and sprinkle sugar on it. And even to this day, the Moroccans cook it with a honey sauce to break the fast at Yom Kippur. It's called balanya. Um, I love the versatility of seeing how each country takes something and runs with it, you know. And now you, you, you actually have a lot of recipes in there where, where there's, there is a, there's a fruit component as well as a meat component. Those basically started in Iran and, okay. um, and they sort of, you know, filtered their way into North Africa through trade. And a lot of the same fruits, I mean, from Iran, we got, you know, apricots and quince and pomegranates. And those filtered their way up into southern Europe. So when you see a stew with, you know, like lamb and artic, uh, apricots or the Moroccan tagines that have raisins and almonds, those really had their origins in the cooking of the brown. They were the first to really put the fruit together with the meat. Right. Now, I, I noticed there were a lot of meatball recipes. <laughs> I could have done a book on ground meat. I, you know, that's really sort of funny. When I was organizing the chapter, it, it was like, oh, my God, look at this. Because, in the you know, Jews weren't wealthy. They they were merchants. They, they were involved in trade, but they didn't have a lot of money, and meat was at a premium. So you'd get meatballs stretched with vegetables, with potatoes, with bread, with matzah. Uh, their meatloaf, meatballs, different sauces. I mean, it was stuffed into vegetables like, you know, dolmas. And <laughs> it was just sort of incredible. I said to the editor, we should do a meatball book. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, I said, I said you practically did, and there's now, so many. Now, here's a, here's a piece of amusing trivia you can use in your demonstration tomorrow. Okay. Uh, the story, the story goes that Marilyn Monroe was dining, I think oh, it was here in, here in Pittsburgh, <laughs> and, and she asked what, what was placed in front of her, which was matzo ball soup, and she said, what do they do with the rest of the matzos? <laughs> now, now the fun, now the funny thing is it's artichoke season, and her first claim to fame was that she was, oh, she was, queen. she was Miss American Artichoke. She was. Well, yeah. you see, that's great because she could take off all those outer layers <laughs> down to the core. Is that what, is that what it was? <laughs> uh, you, you know, uh, I, I didn't, again, it's one of these things that becomes obvious when, when you point it out is uh, you don't see as much chicken, uh, as, as, you do in other cultures, in, in a way. Well, because the chickens were so valuable for the eggs. I mean, when you look at the number of dishes that have eggs, they right. they didn't slaughter a chicken till it was too old, you know, for anything else. I mean, chickens were really precious for. Yeah, Joyce said the, the chicken. Joyce says in, she says in her book in the first. I looked at why there was a section on poultry versus a section on meat, since the last time I checked. Chicken was meat. Oh, no. <laughs> but, I mean, we but, but, separate them. But, but we then I, well, I also understood why, because you said very clearly part, part of it was because chicken was precious, so if you were going to do something with chicken, it, it better be really good. It had to be really good, and it was, you know, done for holidays primarily, um, because the eggs, I mean, all the gratins, the omelets, uh, any of the cakes, and there are eggs in virtually every, you know, every dish. You can't be a vegan for this one. <laughs> Thank goodness for that. Yeah, I agree. And the other surprise was uh, your fish section, um, which I hadn't really thought of 
as, as broad a section as, as what you present, especially this, um, well, in, in Sicilian we call it agrodolce, but what is mm-hmm. it, the term for sweet and sour? Sweet and sour, lots of it. Yeah. Um, I, what I liked about this, because Jews are not allowed to eat shellfish, the fish repertoire has got to be pretty interesting. Pretty and no good. scales either. I yeah, mean, fish with no scales. No scales. That's right. So um, I was pleased to see how many really delicious fish recipes there are. I'm doing one in a couple of days for our, our newspaper that's a fish with a sauce of rhubarb and tomato, which they cook in Greece and Turkey. Oh, wow. And it's it's sweet and sour because the rhubarb, of course, is sour. sour. And there are a lot of sweet and sour dishes, also vegetables prepared sweet and sour. But that seems to be sort of the Jewish way. We like to look at it from the good side and the bad side, you know. Um, it's interesting. That life is not always sweet. For Rosh Hashanah, you want everything to be sweet, but the rest of the time there's that underlying tartness or bitterness, you know. Now, I was actually born and raised just outside the fabulous north of England rhubarb triangle. I don't know what that is. It's, yeah, it's, I, I never it's near, it's, near, it's near Leeds and Bradford in... in uh, in the West Riding of Yorkshire, the where I was raised, rhubarb growing section in the world, probably in the world, and it's it's, a, it's almost all grown in greenhouses. Ah, huh. wonderful! Uh, but my mother would no more think of cooking fish with rhubarb than fly. <laughs> <laughs> but you see, I mean, this is uh, most people wouldn't think of it. But also, like rhubarb is used, you know, it is a vegetable, and in a lot of the Syrian and Lebanese soups, rhubarb is used in place of lemon. It adds a tartness to the soup. So we all can learn something new. This is the thing oh, that's so exciting about cooking is that you're just. Oh, I think it's. I think it's. A, I think it's a. It's a, it's a fabulous thing. It's an. It's a truly fabulous idea. Uh, th- th- I'll have to make sure that when when we see rhubarb, I'll try. I'll try, try it. Try, yeah, try, I think I think you'll really rhubarb. like it. It's delicious. So and and of course we should mention that you're. You have a very extensive uh, section here on condiments and preserves. Do you really have all these things in your larder, Joyce Gould? Yes, I do. As a matter of <laughs> fact, I am pre- I'm a preserving fanatic. I'm a fiend. Are you really? And um, I'm all, well. Actually, I'm actually working on a book on preserves right now because oh. I find that they make simple food taste complicated. You can have a whole larder full of preserves, like the Moroccan tomato conserve or one of those things in here. And you make a simple chicken breast or a simple piece of fish or a lamb chop, and you put some of the sauce on, and you've elevated the entire meal. Uh, I think even haroset, which is made, you know, mostly for the right. Seder, actually, if you've made a lot, keep it in the fridge because you can use it like a chutney. It's delicious. So there are a lot of these things that I think... It makes fast food taste complicated. That like you spent a lot of time. I doing. mean, I don't think I've ever had a dish with preserved lemons that I didn't adore. Oh yeah, yeah, they're great, and so, they keep you know in the fridge for quite a while. So I just keep thinking if I do preserving and canning and all this stuff that I'm going to poison somebody. I don't know. No, no, no. <laughs> if it has enough acidity and the jar has sealed, you will not knock anybody off. <laughs> Right. And of course you have a full roster of desserts. Yes. And, and that's, that's the whole story in itself, how the Arabs introduced um, sugar into uh, sugar Europe. Sugar cane, almonds, I mean all these things that they brought. Citrus fruits came from the Arabs yeah. and, and 
But it's interesting, I was reading about the citrus trade was largely run by Sephardic Jews uh, because they needed the etrog, the citron, for Sukkoth festival. Oh, yeah. So they took over all the production of citrus fruits and they became the traders in Europe of citrus fruit. Now, wow. it's interesting because when, when we were in Valencia in Spain... Mm-hmm. The, fa- the famous, famous of course, for the Valencia juice oranges. Right. They told us that, in fact, that, and this is an official tourist guide, they told us that, in fact, the oranges were first introduced purely for decorative purposes. Oh, yeah, right. They were, they the were, trees. they were pretty looking trees with orange fruit on them, and that's the reason they were, that's the reason they were there, and no one would think of eating them. Well, there were people eating them. If you go through this book, <laughs> you will find so many cakes that have orange and orange and almond that you know go back to these Arabic traditions. And lots of times where the orange is boiled whole and pureed and used in a filling, um, it's it's pretty interesting stuff. But we have a ton of recipes with orange. And in Turkey and in other of the Arab countries, those recipes are called Portugal, like Portugal, because the Portuguese traders were bringing the oranges. Wow. Yeah. Well, this book is, as I said, it's a treasure, Joyce, and I'm so glad to have it. And uh, I, I look forward to cooking from it, and I wish you much success with it. Thank you so much, Anna Peter, and I hope you have fun cooking from this book. Call me up if you have any questions. <laughs> I will. <laughs> so anyhow, it would be nice to see you soon, too. Well, we'll try and do that. Okay, Joyce, thank you so much. Thank you. And we'll be back with more wisdom this time about wine right after the break. So be sure not to go away because we'll be right back. Podcasting services for On The Menu Radio are provided by ASP Station, www.aspstation.net. Well, here we are again, and uh, we have another indispensable reference book for you. It's um, Karen McNeil, who's a a very accomplished wine teacher and scholar, and her book is absolutely essential to navigate uh, the whole new uh, field of enology. It's called The Wine Bible, and as Peter said, the scope of it is biblical. Exactly, and it it, took, you know, it only took her five years. It took her ten years to do the first edition. I don't I don't know why it only took her five years to do the second one. However, <laughs> <laughs> she did is absolutely amazing, and you'll be amazed. You'll be entertained, and I'm sure you'll want to get a copy for your own bookshelf. Karen McNeil, welcome to On the Menu Radio. I think you've been with us before, celebrating. Your mighty tome. This this book doesn't call it. This is not a book. This is a tome. And my first question is: How on earth could one human being possibly manage to deal with all this intellectual property? Well, I think there are a lot of women who are listening who who understand how. Right? When you when you want something big done, give it to a busy woman. Yes. <laughs> I see. Okay. I rather like the W. C. Fields quote myself. Yes, well, we could say that as well. But in all honesty, I think uh, one of the reasons that there are not more 
comprehensive books like the Wine Bible is that it does take a long time to do, and it is a huge project to wrap your mind around. And of course, for me, I went to every wine region in the world. I've tasted 10,000 wines, literally, for just this second edition and probably 30,000 for the first edition. So it's, uh, it is a big project. Let's interject here for our listeners. Uh, before forget to mention this on the way through because we're going to be having so much fun talking about the, a subject which you and I and Anne all agree is one of our favorites. This book is, if, if you're interested in knowing anything more about wine than just drinking, opening up a bottle and drinking it, this book is absolutely indispensable. It has so much, it is so packed with information it's unbelievable. As I turned every page preparing for this interview, I said, there's something new, there's some new information on this page. And I thought I knew a lot about wine. Yeah, well, and I want to interject something too, Karen, because uh, uh, Peter's going to be uh, going on in particulars about the wine. And I want to say that one of the things that makes your work so extraordinary is not only is your writing lucid, but you deal with wines almost poetically. And, and you characterize them uh, very uniquely. So well, summarizing. Thank you, Anne. Yeah, I mean, summarizing uh, flavor and history and culture and the whole thing with words is very <laughs> hard. It is hard. Uh, one of the reasons that wine can be challenging for for people, for consumers, is that it's genuinely hard to put it into words. And so I think to the extent that I have uh, some skills, I, I think I, I am a very good researcher, but I also believe I do have a knack for putting wine into words, and I'm, I, I guess I'd say I'm blessed in that way. I would go beyond that. I would I would say that the brilliance that you have is that you use words that people can actually understand rather than the gobbledygook, oh, which, yeah, is, which is which is the uh, wine speak, which is the documents, you know, the documentary set. I guess people who talk, who write about wine for a living. Well, thank you. I a great a great honor, and I you know I did feel that when I was writing the wine bible that. I imagined a, you know, a regular person like myself uh, just sitting there with me. And I personally, when I was learning about wine, I just hated it when people answered my questions technically or answered questions in a way that assumed that you had been through a class in organic chemistry or answered way in a way that required a whole, that you know a whole separate vocabulary and so I was pretty committed to the idea that I would use absolutely plain English and and describe wines and concepts in a way that any basically intelligent person would would absolutely understand it take us inside the cover the covers of the book and the early chapters because here's where the no, the the novice wine aficionado is is going to find a tremendous amount of value and the ability if you like if they listen, if they if they read carefully to catch up with the more uh, esoteric wine lovers right yes peter you know the first few chapters uh, could be a book unto themselves essentially the first few chapters are what it took me 
probably 20 years to learn on my own because I could not find that information anywhere when I was learning about wine. So it's, they are concepts like, how do you figure out if a wine is good? What are the elements of greatness? What makes a wine good or even great? How do you taste? How do pros do it and why do professionals do it in a certain way? What matters and what is sort of affectation? What do you need to know about grapes, right? There are more than 5,000 grape varieties in the world. How do these compare? So there are sections on every major grape in the world, actually, and a huge glossary of about uh, a thousand more rare uh, grapes. And then how, how do vines grow? Are vineyards important? Why are they important? What sort of the, uh, how do you understand the intersection of climate and soil and all of those ideas? And again, what matters and, and what doesn't? How is wine made and how does, how it's made affect the way it tastes? Is there a, if a wine is made in a certain way, can you dependably know that that's going to create a certain flavor? And then finally, maybe my favorite of the, the last of the beginning chapters is sort of all of the practical questions all of us have. You know, should you let a wine breathe? What temperature should you serve it at? How long does wine last? How long can you keep it in your house or apartment? How do you figure out what a good retail store is? How do you buy wine well and, and uh, effectively? How do you pair wine with food? So those first few chapters, and I think there are five or six of them, are absolutely everything anyone would ever need to know about wine. And then, of course, after that, we go country by country around the world. Yeah, you have a compendium, I guess. Following that, but I, the, the first part is really interesting. And I, I tested myself on on a number of things and said, did did I, did I know that? And I sort of gave myself a pat on the back if I did. So when you, so when you started the, the little piece on this 120 miles from Burgundy, and there's there's an area which has similar soil types and possibly could be used for making champagne, and the only difficulty is it's in England. <laughs> <laughs> yes, exactly. And the, and the, the, the great part about it is I knew that was coming. Uh, well, I can tell by your accent that you yeah. might have, yes. Uh, but when when I lived there, they certainly weren't making any. <laughs> That's for sure. No question about it. I mean, here's, here's as far in history as I go back, just, just to give you an idea. And then I want to roll forward using using the, the, the knowledge that I have, but amplified by the knowledge you can add to what it is people need to know today versus what they think they knew when they were thinking about wine 50 years ago. So, yes. when, when, so when I was, uh, when I was growing up in England, there were fortified wines like sherry and port. And I guess my, my parents always kept a small bottle of those in the, in, in, in the back of the cupboard somewhere, but they were, they only came out for weddings and funerals. They were not, they were not something that people drank from day to day to day to day to today. And Australia, now one of the world's most powerful voices in the making of wine, produced the most awful, uh, sweet wines in, in places where sweet wines are still being made today, but they'd be made properly. So yeah. You got, so you got these disgusting brown and red wines. And you also got 
wines that were called British wines, which were actually made from grape juice that came from somewhere else. And they all had the same profile. They all tasted super-duper sweet. Yes, yes. Now, now, yes. now, we, now we go forward, and, and here I'm going to, to pay tribute to you, and then I'm going to ask you to see if you can identify a few more things like this. We actually had the opportunity on one of our trips to Australia. We stayed at Yolumba. There's, yes. there's a house on the property, which was the house that was built by the original founder, whose name was, was it Percy? Yeah, I think so. Something like Percy. And Percy's house. Everybody, was everybody, everybody kept on saying, when you get to Yolumba, you'll be staying at Percy's. And I had no idea where it was. And it turns out, turns out it's a house on the property that they use for visitors. That's where we couldn't even figure out how to turn on the lights. Was that yeah. <laughs> no, no, we couldn't figure out how to, how to turn on the stove Stop, and the get stove. it to stay. So there was a refrigerator full of what delicious foods like bacon that would have gone beautifully <laughs> with the wine that was in there. And we couldn't get, we couldn't get the, the, the stove to stay lit. Uh, but here's a place, and you, you didn't include this one, although you might, and just didn't notice it. This is one of the few wineries in the world that still makes its own barrels. Yes. Uh, and you, tri- you attribute Yolumba to making a truly delicious, it's not exactly the word you used, a, v- a Viognier-based wine, which we had the opportunity to drink when we were there. And this, this is the kind of knowledge that's absolutely invaluable for someone who's going to be not just selecting wine to drink, but potentially even touring the world and trying to go to places that are the homes of great wines. Can you think of some other examples of knowledge that you think you're particularly proud of? Let's see. Well, you know, oh, gosh, I I don't know where to begin because I'm proud so much of, of so much of the Wine Bible, all of it, in fact. But, you know, there are... I suppose I would could only answer that in this way, and that is that every now and then someone says to me, well, aren't you done now? Aren't you tired of wine? <laughs> Don't you want to move on and drink something else and or study something else, research something else? And I think to myself, absolutely not, because it's discoveries like Yolumba's Viognier that keep you... Um, so intrigued with the wine business, especially if you're, and with wines themselves, especially if you're a global person as I am. I, I don't focus on Sonoma Pinot Noirs, let's say, or French Bordeaux. I need to understand the, the whole world. And so there are many, many discoveries out there waiting and when you find them yes you feel proud and excited we were laughing we were laughing earlier on about the about the quote from wc fields by the way let me see if i can remember it i always cook with wine and sometimes i even put some in the food yes exactly yeah. well yeah i i love your approach to uh, total immersion to understand the wine uh, where you were tangoing this place and you were <laughs> stomping grapes and that place and um, tell us about some of those experiences well you know wine is of course I mean, well let me say it this way I think one of the reasons that in the last 20 years a lot of wine books are not very interesting to read they're like reading the phone book or something right there well, yeah, um, is because uh, they've stripped culture uh, it, it, there's been a tendency in the last 20 years or 25 years to isolate wine and take it out of the context 
the cultural context that it exists in. But wine is, is inevitably a part of, of a context, of its culture, of the forces that shape it, the area's history. It's very much tied into religion. It's tied into food and gastronomy. So my approach has always been to put all those things back, to really understand a wine region by virtue of all of its cultural and historical idiosyncrasies. So, for example, when I was in Argentina, my editor called me and she said, what what are you working on? Meaning, what part of the Wine Bible? And I said, "Uh, right now I'm working on the history of the tango. (laughs) And she said, oh my God, Karen, you are just something else. And I said, yeah, but I don't think you can understand Argentine wine unless you understand something about the tango. And so I take that approach to every place that I am is to try and understand character and the culture of the place. And I find that when you do that, then the wine sort of makes sense. You know, we could we could take it a little bit further. We recently interviewed uh, the daughter of the uh, the, um, the big Pepe wine in, in uh, Abruzzo in Italy, um, and she she does uh, not her father's style, but she does biodynamic, uh-huh. and she does um, everything's totally organic, biodynamic, the whole thing. But um, she she had this idea of building um, her her winery. And, and having everything, all the grapes move according to gravity and whatnot. But she was going to have packages of people stomping, uh, tourist packages for people who could come and stomp on grapes on the top floor. And then she decided that, in fact, it, that wasn't good enough. She had to select personally people who loved the wine and could share their love of the wine to get good wine from the stomping. <laughs> Uh, so, uh, so she she hand selects. She doesn't let just anybody. Wow, that's great. Yeah. Now, he, here's an interesting thing that, that crossed my uh, my well. I don't know how you describe it. Crossed my consciousness the, just the other day. We live in an, in a state which is which makes it difficult to be a wine aficionado since it's called Pennsylvania and the state controls the distribution and, and retail of wines. But I picked up a wine from the Perrin family of the Chateauneuf-du-Pape region. Uh-huh. And it has a, has a picture of a cart horse on the front. And it ju- just has a name. And it says on the label, this wine is made from bi- biodynamically grown grapes. And yeah. I said, let me, let me test further what I know and see if it does say on there. But by the way, this wine does contain sulfites. And, and sure enough, it did. Which is not surprising, I guess, as the parents are nothing if not uh, being you know, to- well, some of the most totally upstanding people in the whole wine world. But there's a distinction here, and somebody told me once that it would be a very risky thing to make a totally biodynamic wine because the sulfites that are in the wine that are put in there are put in there for a purpose to make sure it doesn't spoil. And and here I thought maybe I've got the secret that in fact there are a lot of biodynamic biodynamically grown grapes but the last step of making it into a wine stops being biodynamic for really good reason now am I right Uh, or what yes sir yes and no I mean there there are a couple of ideas that are uh, kind of 
mush together here. Sulfur is a naturally occurring organic part of the Earth's crust. Right. Sulfur is not a chemical. It is a and it is an organic part of the Earth's crust. It's an it's a antimicrobial agent. It helps kill bad bugs. Nonetheless, and and sulfur, by the way, sulfites are sulfites are created as a naturally occurring byproduct of fermentation. Okay. So even when a winery doesn't use any added sulfur. There is always some sulfites in wine. Always, always. Uh, the question is, do you add them or not? Yeah. Do you add additional ones or not? Now, most places in the world that are dry, like California, Australia, Chile, Argentina, they often do not add any additional sulfites because it's dry. There are there aren't a huge number of microbes uh, uh, ready to go uh, to attack the wine, although certainly there are some. But in areas that are more wet, like Bordeaux or Burgundy, it is really helpful to have some sulfur. And if you didn't, if you didn't, the wine would taste like a chemical, it would taste like a microbial, rather, like a microbial stew. It, there would be all kinds of oh, terrible. Yeah. mechanisms in there. So sulfur is not a bad thing. In fact, it's one of the most widely misunderstood parts of wine. There are, of course, a few, a very small percentage of the population who are allergic to sulfur, sulfur and sulfites. Those people know who they are, and those people have no fruit juice, no fruits, no canned fruits or vegetables, no dried fruits, no wine. People can have to avoid all kinds, all fermented products. Those, the people who are severely allergic have to avoid all kinds of things. For the rest of us, um, added sulfur means that we're drinking something that's cleaner. Uh-huh. Uh, otherwise, you would be drinking something that would be full of microbes. Wow. Now, Karen, a question. Now, you worked for 10 years on your original book, and this is your first, um, uh, uh, what do you call it, updated? Right. Uh, yeah. Uh, and now, what was the span in terms of years between your first publication and your reissue? And what happened in those years that, that you knew uh, made it essential to do an update? Right. Well, there were 15 years uh, between them, between the coming out of the first uh, Wine Bible and then the second edition, 15 years. And so if you are writing a consumer guide to wine where you're saying, okay, here's Mondavi Chardonnay, it gets 87 points. It's the oh, 2012 right, right. vintage. And now here's the 2013 vintage, and it gets 88 points. Then you have to update those kinds of books every year. But for a book like mine, my book is answering big questions like, what makes Bordeaux Bordeaux? How do you know, right? What, what is it about Bordeaux? And how does Bordeaux work? And what do the wines taste like? Those things don't change year by year. However, in the 15 years between these two books, there have been a lot of big seismic changes. We know a lot more about uh, the genetics of grapes. 
we know a lot some in some places winemaking has changed there have been whole new regions that have come online china canada mexico slovenia um uh, so whole new new wine regions that were either very small or unknown anyway in the U.S. 15 years ago. So it was it was time to do another book. Um, but I'm glad I didn't do another book before this point. Uh-huh. Now I guess with climate change, you're going to have to write another one on a faster schedule. Maybe. I don't know. I mean, it is, uh, yes, climate change is, in fact, very concerning to all wine regions. And it's not just that some wine regions are getting warmer. It's more that a lot of regions are getting very unpredictable. I mean, for example, uh, right now, the Napa Valley, for where I am right this moment and where I live, is on maybe the second month of huge rainstorms. It would usually be dry and sunny by now. Mm-hmm. Um, so what climate change often means is unexpected climatic changes, uh, and that, that is worrisome to all kinds of agriculture. Let me give listeners just a couple of tidbits. That they can that they can look at here, and then as I said to you already, I, it's only it's only fair to say there are literally thousands of these. So the only way to get all of them is to buy the book and be careful to read it. I'm looking at page 117, where the heading is risky relationships, and the following foods that I challenge to pair with wines, for ex- for example, artichokes, and asparagus, and eggs, and vinegar. So it, it's very handy. I mean, it, this is knowledge that that we obtain someplace along the along the road, but many people have not, and I'm sh- and I'm sure they struggle and they're disappointed when they have a, a glorious dinner party for their guests and then the wine tastes funny. Right. Yes. No. The the whole goal with the wine bible was to create one book where you could essentially go for everything. Right. The I rem- the other day I was talking to my daughter who. Uh, while I wa- who is 13, and while I was not home, she decided that she was going to uh, hard-boil eggs. And I said to her, how did you know how to h- hard-boil eggs? And she said, well, I, I sort of guessed, and I could see that she kind of she looked it up on her phone. But I said to <laughs> her, you know, there's a book here called The Joy of Cooking. You can uh, look yeah. up anything in this book, and it will tell you the answer. And... Uh, Anyway, the wine Bible is a little bit like that, right? It, absolutely it everything, large and small, is in there. It, it absolutely is. Here's a, here's a just a final one to close, and I'll give you I'll give the the end result first. In in France, pretty soon, if you if you say a six pack silver play, that that will not just mean you're buying beer, and it's because for for centuries and centuries. Wine has been packed in in uh, boxes of twelve, and you suggest that maybe the the fact that there were twelve apostles had something to do with that, or in fact that twelve twelve is very easily divisible by two, three, and four, for example. So it's a great so it's great for factoring like that. Uh, but you but you you answer the question why why do why do we do that and why does it have to change? 
and uh, one of the reasons it has to change, according to the French, is a case of 12 bottles is too heavy. <laughs> yes, <laughs> and, exactly. And, and dangerous to your health. <laughs> yes, we, we um, it, and anyone who's tried to carry a case of wine, we carry yes. a lot of cases around my office, right. and I will tell you there are many times that uh, we wish that a case carried six bottles instead of 12. Right. <laughs> but it's still, still this, this is, I guess, you could expect it of the nation which has a 35-hour work week. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> see, or see, or one, my, my greatest uh, French adventure of late is their effort to remove the circumflex from their spelling. <laughs> you know about that one? Yes. Carry, <laughs> people are up in arms. <laughs> How would you know it's French if it didn't have the circumflex? Exactly. <laughs> Karen, one, one last question. What What's your current latest wine discovery that you really like? Current latest wine discovery. Well, I will tell you that um, we are tasting in my office later today, and we did last week, uh, you know, it's spring and summer, of course, are coming. So we've been doing uh, some big rosé tastings. We're on tasting number two of about a hundred uh, different rosés from mm-hmm. all over the world, and um, it's really putting me in the uh, mood for spring and summer because so many rosés from around the world are delicious and uh, relatively inexpensive. Uh, so I would I would have to say for right now that I'm very excited to see all these uh, all these delicious rosés coming onto the market, and this is when they come on right right about now. I was in my state store just this morning, and they have a Pinot Noir rosé from Elk Cove, one oh, of wow. our one of our favorite vineyards in Oregon. So so maybe we'll. We're not all that fond of rosé, but we love Elko, so maybe we'll give them a try. And uh, we thank you so much for joining us today. Karen, I'd like to have dinner with you someday. Yes, (laughs) we'll have to try that. (laughs) We're due due to head out to the wine region in California sometime this year if we can find the time. So we'll, we'll let you know, and hopefully you'll be around and we can look you up. Excellent. Great. Karen, All thank right. You. Thank you. Thank you, Ann and Peter. Thanks thank so you. much. <laughs> Bye-bye. Bye now. Podcasting services for On The Menu Radio are provided by ASP Station, www.aspstation.net. Well, Claudia Wu is a co-founder of a very important magazine called Cherry Bomb, which we'll be talking about. Uh, and in fact, Claudia and I talk um, approximately once a year and exactly at this time because it's when Cherry Jubilee happens. It's another kind of dessert. Bomb, by the way, is spelled with an E, and that's a dessert. And Jubilee, Cherry Jubilee is another dessert. But at any rate, I know it's happening today, which is not giving you enough time to register and attend, but I'd have to have had almost super powers to, to get you the information and time to beat the crowd because it sells out almost immediately. I think that Claudia said they released the information that morning and by lunchtime the conference was totally sold out. 
but the good the good news if if you're interested is they're planning another one later this year, probably in San Francisco, and they promise that the venue next year in 2017 will be a whole lot bigger, so more of you'll be able to go. And of course, we'll keep you posted. But in the meantime, here's Claudia talking about the present day. Seems just about this time of year is when I get to talk to Claudia Wu. Uh, Claudia is a co-founder of Cherry Bomb. Uh, let's start out, Claudia, with talking about what exactly is Cherry Bomb and what is your mission. Oh, um, Cherry Bomb is a biannual magazine. We cover women and food. You don't necessarily have to be a chef or someone working in the business. You can just be someone who loves food. Um, but it's a celebration of, of all things beautiful, delicious. We love it. We love that it's a platform to celebrate women who might not necessarily get press anywhere else besides Cherry Bomb. So mm-hmm. it's really into something, I think, special for us and special for women in the industry. Well, I just wonder if you, I mean, you just had your second uh, Jubilee, which is a play on the dessert, obviously. <laughs> and bomb, yeah. by the way, is spelt with an E, which is also a, a food reference. You have main headliners, A-list women in the food industry uh, as on your programs, last year it was who was it, it was Ruth Reichel and I mean there are just so many that, that um, you can't just highlight them all. Yeah, and, and, and this year, and it's not just as you say chefs, but it's uh, writers. You call them food power ladies, and you sell out immediately, don't you? Well, well I thank God for that. Every year we sold out faster and faster. So the first year it took actually a couple weeks. Um, the second year, which was last year, took three days. And this year we had to stop selling tickets the same day, <laughs> basically at midnight when we put tickets on sale at, at noon. We were just like, oh, my gosh, we, we're we not going to be able to fit all these people. So we had to stop the ticket sales. Um, I mean, so are you we're surprised? Very lucky. Are you surprised yes. by this? I was shocked. Uh-huh. Um, but but very thankful and very grateful that people want to attend. Well, it certainly indicates a certain need, right? Yes, I think next year we're going to have to get a bigger venue. <laughs> yeah, that's true. See, see I, I want to ask two, two questions, and, and and if you don't like the questions, and you don't like the answers, we'll we'll edit them out. But I, I'm wondering if with all the events that are happening around the world, all the disastrous events that are happening around the world, do you think you should consider changing the name of the conference? What would we change it to? Something <laughs> something other than bomb. Oh. Oh. But it's not with an E. It's a dessert, right? <laughs> yeah. I understand, I understand it is, but it's still a bomb. It's a French dessert. Um, yeah. I... I, I don't know if we could change it now. <laughs> it's kind of ingrained in our identity. So I, I understand that whole thing. And uh, we have these stickers that say, you're the bomb, um, these like pink stickers. And I know some people have had them on their laptops and gotten funny looks. Oh, really? But, <laughs> yeah. But it is spelled with an E, so it's... It, yeah, yeah. I, I look at it and I see immediately a, a desirable dessert. I understand, I understand. Well, what's your second question? How, how was Martha Stewart? 
How is Martha Stewart? Yes. Oh, well, I... I, 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 noticed, I noticed that she was in your program. Yeah, so Martha Stewart is the keynote this year, which I'm excited about. I grew up on Martha Stewart. She was my food role model, basically. And, you know, I went to RISD, Rhode Island School of Design, and so many of the women who were in my, my graphic design program, their dream job was working for Martha. And Martha Stewart recruited heavily from from RISD. So I collected the magazine from the day it started. I loved watching her show. So I'm, I'm very excited to have her be the keynote at this year's Jubilee. Now, what did you, so you went to design school. I mean, the magazine certainly looks like it, doesn't it? Yes, yes. I went to Rhode Island School of Design for Graphic Design. And um, so do you still do that? Yeah, I, well, yeah. Um, besides doing Cherry Bomb, I do do other projects, design books. I've done logos, identities. So I work for other brands. Yeah, Cherry Bomb is, is a passion project right now. Uh-huh. Um, hopefully, you know, I think everyone thinks that we're doing, you know, we're doing this full time, but we're not. Um, Carrie, my partner in Cherry Bomb, has some restaurants in Brooklyn that she she owns and operates with her boyfriend. He's a chef. And um, so, Char- so Carrie is a chef, and she's she actually. Oh no no no! Carrie's not a chef. She, no, she just. She's like business partners. Her boyfriend is the chef. Okay. And the the whole reason why she got into the food world is because her boyfriend was asked her if she ever thought about opening restaurants. And Carrie and I met at Harper's Bazaar. So we both kind of have more fashion backgrounds. Uh-huh. And uh, so we have Carrie's boyfriend to blame for Cherry Bomb. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's an undertaking to turn anything out that... that design conscious I think so oh yeah it's we were just talking about this I think it gets harder and harder to do the magazine when it should be easier and easier yeah yeah no our our cousin just started um, beauty pages in the UK and it's also um, twice a year but it's like constant work yeah it's quite the endeavor plus we do we do Jubilee. Um, we're planning on doing more conferences this year. Okay, tell and us about that. So, I think, I mean, Jubilee is such a phenomenon for us. I had no idea that these conferences would be so popular. So, we've been doing it for three years in New York. This will be our third year. So, we decided, you know, maybe it's time to do a West Coast one. Um, mm-hmm. It's looking, It's looking like it'll be in San Francisco. And it's something that we'd love to do in other places. Um, you know, a lot of times people can't travel to be here in New York at this time. And there's a there's a ton of talent out in the world. So I think San Francisco would be a great place to start. Yeah, well, of course, that, that was the most uh, successful location for uh, an organization. I used to belong to Women Chefs and Restaurateurs, which is still going. Um they uh, they give uh, annual awards and scholarships and so forth. Outside of major centers, though, you run up against the problem that there aren't that many women that you could draw from. Right. Yeah. And that that was a problem with with us. So well, even today, I mean, I think I feel like there are a lot of women in San Francisco now. 
Well, there were when, when we started with yeah, the Jets right. too. There are more now. There are people like Dominique Crane, for example. Yeah, yeah well, Dominique yeah. was the one saying and complaining about how uh, it's not as it's it's not as active as it was when we first started out. Oh, really? You mean oh, yeah. w, you mean WCR? WCR. He got subverted by people who were hangers-on rather than actual doers of the the restaurant and chefing business. And you have to, you have to bear that in mind. Their reaction to it, which was to increase the dues for everyone, wasn't a working chef. So yeah. somehow it didn't seem like a very good idea. No, especially since we were all uh, carrying on the day-to-day planning. And did all the work, but she wasn't a professional chef, so she got to pay five times as much as anybody else. Just to, oh, my goodness. Just to, just to belong. And, and yet she was the one whose chapter had all the attendees. Yeah, well... We were talking before we started recording the interview. How much progress in, in your mission are you seeing? Because today they just released the uh, 2016 uh, Best New Chefs in, in America, Food and Wine Magazine. And um, as usual, um, that's even worse than usual, out of 11 winners, only one was a woman. Yeah, I, I've come to expect that these days from from these things, and I think I think working in a restaurant and being a chef is is a tough job, and I don't think Cherry Bomb is necessarily um, responsible for making it easier to work in a restaurant or open your own restaurant, but I think it has kind of created this community of women who can support each other, and um, it's. It's such a nice network at Jubilee if you come. Um, you know, it's mostly women in the room, and they come from all walks of life. And we have a great panel this year called New York's Next Wave, and it's it's like five women in New York who own their own restaurants or are the executive chefs of restaurants. And, I mean, I think it'll be a great kind of gauge about where the industry is. I think it is kind of different, like when women run kitchens, I think the atmosphere is different, um, but it's still super tough. One of the chefs that's coming just had a baby in the last month, so it'll be interesting to hear her perspective about being a new mom and, and, you know, having to get back to work. The thing about Cherry Bomb is that, you know, you don't have to work in in a restaurant kitchen to be in Cherry Bomb. There are so many other jobs out there for women who are interested in working in food. Yeah, well, this is... I think... Yeah, go ahead. Oh, I think I think working as a chef in a restaurant is just a very small, you know, example of things that you do. Yeah, well, this is what Joyce Goldstein told me last year, I think it was, when I was complaining, as I am now, about lack of recognition of women and, and how many get to, to be executive chefs, you know, in important restaurants. But she said that women have been very, very good about finding out other ways of expressing their culinary talent and still being able to balance their lives. Exactly. Yeah. And, I mean, I, I've always loved food, and I've always wanted to open a bakery or something, but I know the hours of a baker are not compatible with my natural, you know, wake-sleep cycle. Like, I don't know. If, what would I – like, I can't – I can barely get up at, like, 6 a.m. or, you know, to go to the gym before work. So how am I supposed to get up at 4 a.m. to start baking? Yeah. Uh, Cherry Bomb is a nice 
you know, alternative to owning a bakery. Well, I thank you for taking the time because you're very busy right now this time of year. Uh, <laughs> thank you for taking the time to talk to us and continued success for Cherry Bomb. Thank you so much. Thanks. Maybe we'll talk again next year. <laughs> I'm sure we will. <laughs> Claudia, thank you. Thank you so much. That's all for this week's program of On the Menu. We, of course, will be back same time, same place next week. We hope you'll join us then. And in the meantime, bye-bye.